how not to be cynical about love itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something I've only recently begun to, <laughs> <laughs> to unpack. There's a lot well, to move away from. Move away from. Yeah, me too. No, but when, when I see other people showing love to each other, usually I'm like, okay, great. That's like pure and fine. But especially when it comes to receiving love, um, my first instinct is like, okay, what do they want from me? Or like, what wound are they acting out? Or what insecurity are they trying to cover up? Or like, you know, yeah. Like, what are, what are all the ways that I can excuses I can use to not trust the person. So you identify as your goal of not wanting to trust this person. Yeah. From the get-go. Yeah, from, yeah. The, from the very beginning. Yeah. What's a sign that you can trust someone? Yeah, that, well, that's my question. Well, that's can my we question to you. What, what, <laughs> what, what, what makes you trust people? What makes you trust people? I don't know. I, um, what makes you trust yourself? I said, well, that's an interesting question. Do you I don't, trust I don't yourself? Know that I trust myself. I know. See that? Good assumption. I think with people, it's like following through on what they say they're going to do. Okay. Um, you want to see if their integrity. words and their actions align. Yeah, that's a really big one. And, but also, like, emotional health, like seeing that they have boundaries and they can respect my boundaries and that, yeah, like they're secure in themselves. Do you journal or keep a gratitude journal or something yeah. like that at night? Yeah. Well, not at night. Or whenever? Yeah. Uh, every day? Yeah. Well, I've started more frequently. Okay. Gratitude or just regular journal? Regular journal. Okay. When you sit down to journal, I want you to write down three things, three times that you were able to trust someone in the last, the last time you journaled. Whoa. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I have started to try. I've, I try. I've tried to do gratitude journaling, and then I always just stop. But um, I like to take that concept of the three. Yeah. You know, and, and, and apply it to everything. Apply it to whatever people are having a tough time seeing. And maybe it's the case that you shouldn't be trusting people. We do live in Los Angeles, after all. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone is trying to use you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but that being said, perhaps it's you're habituated to this, and just knowing the very little I know about you. I get the sense that there wasn't a lot of people you could trust Mm. for a long time. Mm. So what I would want to move you towards is, is that a defense mechanism which was was really useful and and very necessary, but now is getting in the way of your finding the happiness you want. It's no longer applicable. Yeah, 100%. Let's start finding times you can trust people. Yeah, no, that would be great. Make a good old list. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll do yeah. that. I will do that. But also, I would like to do an episode <laughs> next time on Pictures of Men. Oh my gosh, you started recording. Of course you did. <laughs> Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. Welcome to another episode of Fishers of Men. Today we have back Daniel Johnson, the MFT superstar from our episodes back in the day when we did on anger and revenge and all those glorious relationship tropes that we wanted to talk about then. But today we're going to talk about another thing 
pertaining to a lot of relationships, obviously communication. It's like the biggest thing. People always say that communication is key. So how do men and women communicate if one species is from Mars and one is from <laughs> Venus? How do we, let's unlock all of those things today with you, Daniel. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. And it's a delightful to see you both again and to address um, what is probably the number one reason people say they come to therapy as a couple mm-hmm. to communicate. So, Cool. So let's go ahead and start with this question. What are the biggest things men and women need to consider when they have conversations? The stereotypes that get us in trouble, but also the tendency we each, generally speaking, have as men and women that can help us understand each other. So I think one of the biggest stereotypes when it comes to communication styles generally between men and women is probably this thought that women are more emotional in their conversations Mm. and men tend to avoid emotions. And a big part of that, you know, maybe is kind of the John Wayne stereotype. And there's this thought among men that, you know, it's the silent guy who doesn't give in to emotions or maybe like the Agent Gibbs from NCIS, you know, to say sorry or to talk about emotions is to show that you're weak. So we have these stereotypes floating around and often maybe our fathers or somebody imitated those or presented those to us. So for men, when we see somebody presenting an argument or a thought with emotion, it's very easy to dismiss that and not to give attention to the content or try to figure out why someone is using emotion or being emotional at this moment or in this conversation. So I think that's probably the biggest stereotype between the communication styles of men and women is a dependency on emotion versus a desire to eschew emotion. But you say it's a stereotype, so are you saying with that that it's not actually true? Yeah, I, I, you know, as a man and having worked with a lot of men in my therapy practice, uh, obviously I see a lot of emotion. And um, it fascinates me. When I have couples in the room, almost always uh, the women will talk about a time when their husband was crying or a time when their husband was overwhelmed with emotion. And I wonder if perhaps for a lot of men, the safety and the confidence of a marriage relationship, of a relationship where they know that they're loved, is a context in which they are safe to be emotional and to express their emotions. I had a a woman tell me the other day, not a client, but um, a good friend, tell me the other day that the first 10 years of her married life, her husband would come home And whenever he had an interaction with his family, he would then cry for the next hour, hour and a half. And she would have to, in her mind, it's kind of the role reversal there. She would have to deal with his breakdown or his emotions when it came to dealing with the family, his family in particular. And then you get into all the in-law problems there. So that probably was never a very fruitful relationship. But so, yeah, I, I think... You know, stereotypes of their nature are going to be broad and general and will apply to, you know, the majority of cases, but not all the cases. And I think we would be hard pressed to find any stereotype that applies to an individual all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. It's interesting because I've heard from like dating advice, love advice gurus, whatever, that in many women who have find themselves having difficulty starting and maintaining relationships 
they are putting up walls because they're afraid of their own emotions and their own vulnerability because at some point they've gotten the message that men will just think they're crazy if they like feel their feelings and present them. And so then they never really offer an opportunity for a man to get to know them and to sit with them when really that's what the men are kind of craving and seeking out is like you said, the opportunity to feel safe because if like you can, you as a woman are safe in your emotions and you don't get derailed and the man will feel that he is safe also feeling his feelings and you know, that things are not going to spin off to crazy town. So can you comment a little bit sort of about that, about how we can both men and women show our feelings in a healthy way? Sure. Yeah. It's interesting. It's easy for us to try to cut off the emotional side of ourselves. And, and as you point out, for women, perhaps one of the motivations there is to avoid being wounded or maybe in the workplace to be taken more seriously or something like mm-hmm. that. Whereas for a guy, it's, it's maybe even a little more deep-seated than that. It's, it's actually an affront to what, like it is, what it is to be a man. You yeah. know? It's in fact not an affront to, be a, to womanhood to have emotions or even to display them. So for that you know, real rigid macho guy, we assume he has no emotional life whatsoever. When in fact, we all know, especially as Christians, but you know, just as you know, people with a little degree of experience of the world, Everyone has an emotional life to some degree. And really the question, I think, comes down to how do we express those emotions? Do we give them expression at all? Do we give them excessive expression? And I think there's a case to be made in both genders for both errors, Mm -hmm. you know. And so perhaps kind of the golden rule of therapy is if if it's a problem that causes you not to fulfill your obligations or to achieve what you need to be happy, then it needs to be addressed. So kind of your question of what makes, what is a proper expression of emotion? I think that depends on the individual and the couple. And there's nothing more singular or particular than one's emotional life. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more unique, I think, than one's emotional life. And, and even confusing, regardless of gender. So I think between you and your partner, you know, if you're married to somebody who has an issue with your display of emotions and has an inability to engage with you when you're having or a display of emotions, then maybe some, something in the relationship needs to be altered so that the spouse can then engage or then relate to you. Yeah, it seems it, it seems like I've also seen this myth around online a lot, especially in like uh, Catholic circles, that women are not attracted to men that show emotions. Like mm. I, I've had guy friends that are saying that, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, but yeah. it seems like if if mm. you're a man that believes that. Maybe you are meeting women that are reacting negatively to something, but you think that it's you expressing emotions, but it could be something completely different Mm -hmm. that the women are reacting negatively to. So it just seems like, you know, I like what you said that both genders, the error of both genders, it's like, it seems like if you are walking around with this mentality of like, I can never show anyone my feelings, then that's just not going to lead you to a fulfilling life. No, it's it's not going to lead you to a human life. Yeah. You know, human beings have these emotions and, you know, maybe there's a context in which it's more or less appropriate to express them, but 
to deny their existence or to assume that I'm going to come off as less human by displaying them, to me is absurd, and it's to deny who we are. And we know that Jesus cried. Absolutely. And it's, it's <laughs> to, to your Catholic and Christian friends, it occurs to me that, you know, among the Desert Fathers, among the monastics, there's this, there's this spirituality of holy tears, of being so overwhelmed with the glory of God that the only expression appropriate is to, is to weep, is to cry. And it's, it's kind of that happy, joy, sad, tears kind of thing, you know. You, you want to weep at something beautiful. And so I can't imagine any well-ordered human being is going to be really objecting to a display of authentic emotion. It's funny that that's a stereotype, like, oh, women are not attracted to emotional men. And yet there's a different word that we use in the stereotypes of what people are attracted to. Like, oh, he's sensitive. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I love the sensitive type. I'm like, what's the difference? Like, anyway, we're all emotional, like you said. And I think this is a good segue to this question that we had about, there's a stereotype that women are crazy, you know, because they are emotional or they cry a lot or, you know, they have this outburst of emotion. Unhinged. Yeah. Versus, like, men, they're like... Somehow we have the stereotype of like men being stoic and more in control of their emotions, but they do. We see a lot of our male friends, as well, as well as women, but males too, get emotional in terms of like being angry. And there are, of course, those males that also cry. I mean, there's it. It doesn't uh, discriminate. Irrational. Exactly. So we are all subject to all of those. So my question for you, Mr. MFT, is. <laughs> How do we best help that situation? Like we're in a conversation with somebody, either they're being irrational or emotional or both. We're in a conversation, we're in it, or an argument. What is the best way to diffuse that situation? Without um, dismissing them. Yes, exactly. Acknowledging them. Like, I hear you. Like, what what are some good tools for us to... Maybe, maybe it is that we step away and like, bro, I'm going to come back when you're a little <laughs> bit more together or that might just make them more upset so I mean I know somebody walks away from me when I'm like upset like that would make me a little crazy as well so like yeah. what what would be the best approach and most healthy approach okay so if I understand your the crux of your question there is you know in a situation where emotion has made us a little unreasonable or perhaps terribly unreasonable how do we then uh, respond in that situation in a way that both resolves the problem but also respects the person's emotional life or, or authentic reaction there? And it, it's interesting that your question is couched in, you know, men tend to get angry and therefore irrational. Women tend to get um, kind of sorrowful or, or sad and then become irrational. And or at least those are the ter- stereotypes. Those are the stereotypes. And what's, what's fascinating about both of those emotions, maybe belabor that side of the discussion a little bit, what's interesting about both those emotions is that anger especially is famous among the philosophers for listening to reason, but not perfectly, is the quote. Mm. You know, it, 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 yeah, in order to be angry, you have to, um, in order to be angry, you have to have a sense that there's an injustice being perpetrated. Mm. And that's not something that our emotions tells us that's something that reason tells us mm-hmm. you know i am due this kind of respect or this mm-hmm. you know thing and it's not being given so i'm listening to reason but in order to get angry at all i have to listen to reason but often reason is not 
being listened to when it comes to the kind of punishment or justice that needs to be enacted for anger. So if something unjust has been done to me, obviously retribution has to be made. But 99% of the time, the retribution I want for somebody not washing the dishes in my house, for example, <laughs> is to punch his lights out, to mm -hmm. be honest. Or, and I'm sure my roommates have, have similar irrational responses to things I do. And in the context of a, of a marriage, you know, who's taking out the trash and we never resolve that. Sometimes we take the trash and throw it at the person or throw it on their bed or something like that. It's an irrational response. Mm -hmm. So anger listens to reason but only but imperfectly is, is kind of the, the notion there. So and sorrow then also, you know, it it avoids trying to resolve a situation. It seeks to kind of rest mm -hmm. in the the evil being perpetrated or, oh, wow. or something going on. So it, it avoids actually ever engaging in what's there. And maybe what we're sad about can't be engaged with. Uh, I lost my father lately and you know, I'm not going to resurrect him anytime soon. I can't resolve his death. So I should be sad about that for mm -hmm. a long time mm -hmm. and periodically throughout my life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's okay to be sad in some con in context. In fact, it's wildly appropriate to be. Right. Um, but to, to your question of when we're in the moment and something our spouse has done to make us sorrowful or something our um, significant other has done to enrage us, what is the right response? Well, that response is going to wildly depend on the couple and wildly depend on what your spouse reacts to and responds to. So as you said, Laura, when somebody walks away from me, which is the advice I give to people who are shouting at each other, <laughs> walk away from each other and come back in five minutes. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you point out that that further enrages you, mm -hmm. okay? And not knowing you or your husband, I don't know how he deals with anger or with emotions or arguments, so I don't know what's best for you. But generally speaking, what we try to talk about when we talk about arguments is coming up with a pattern or a way that you guys will systematically argue. And there's two really fantastic schools of thought, if you will, or therapists, if you will, who have outlined ways to argue fruitfully in a marriage or in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And those gentlemen are Dr. Gottman from Washington State and Dr. Gary Chapman of the Five Love Languages. Yeah, the Five Love Languages fame. He actually has a ton of books, and I recommend all of them, including one called The Apology Language. Which is, I think is the name, but it's oh. ways to apologize and how apologies work in a relationship. Oh, that's cool. I'd never heard of that book. Yeah, that was actually one of his first books. So what I, what I always recommend to my couples when they come to me in counseling and in therapy first is to go out and find some resource that they can use to guide them through how to argue or how to communicate with each other. And usually I recommend either of those doctors' websites, Gottman.com or Gary Chapman's website. So that's the first thing because, one, I want them to start getting resources outside of my office so that they're actively going about finding a way to solve their problems and so they're not stuck in therapy forever. As much as my bottom line would love that, mm -hmm. it's better to get people out there. So I'm going to briefly kind of go through Dr. Chapman's various steps of his particular 
way to argue. And then I'm going to maybe give a comment on Dr. Gottman's, one of his most famous kind of ideas. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, where we tend to consider arguments to be the most dire are in a marriage because uh, for a lot of people that begins to herald the end of a marriage. Oh no, we're fighting, how could we possibly stay together? Or I must have fallen out of love because I've never experienced this, but apparently people go through dating and never have an argument, which is astounding to me. <laughs> but well, also, a lot of people date without ever revealing their true selves or, you know, like if you're never right. forced, if you, and if you don't really want to, then I think it's possible to keep your guard up. Absolutely. When you're dating. Hmm. And, and what I think perhaps even before we talk about how to argue, perhaps talking a little bit about the fact that arguing is part of what it means to be a human being. Mm. It's part of what mm. it means to be in a relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it's being a teenager and you've got a parent, whether it's your friends at school, whether it's your spouse. Arguing is part of what it means to be human. And falling back a little bit to the, the uh, concepts on emotion, it's easy for people to want to avoid arguments because there's emotion involved or to use emotion rather than having an actual discussion. One need look at Facebook for two minutes to see people using emotion rather than having a discussion, right? Uh, we see that all over the place. Uh, that's the first thing. It's just that arguments are going to be part of what it means to have an opinion part of what it means to have a thought, part of what it means to have a conclusion, you're going to run into people who don't share those. Right. Mm. So, and that doesn't spell the end of a relationship. In fact, and it seems to me that one of the reasons we get married or have relationships of any sort, but especially marriage, is to have the opportunity to work with somebody or to live with somebody who will help us order our emotions, grow in virtue, and become holy. Mm. That's the whole point of marriage. To use a kind of extreme example from monasticism, the Desert Fathers never allow a guy to be a hermit until he spent 10, 15, 20 years in the monastery living with people. Because it's in contact with people, it's in relationship to people that one, we see how we're disordered. We see our vices. Mm. I'm not going to get angry at people or have road rage or be upset that things aren't getting done if I'm living on my own. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. We all bemoan roommates. Yeah, I'm the first to do that. And But I also recognize that if I lived on my own, if I remained single, I'm never going to see how I'm disordered about dirty dishes or the trash mm -hmm. not getting taken out or any of the minutiae that shouldn't make me angry, that I should be patient about. And yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons why single people sometimes we hold ourselves back from getting out there and dating because sometimes you look at dating and you're like, oh gosh, and all you see it's is this, work. this, yeah, this incredibly difficult work that will ultimately make you a better person, but it, until you get to that point, it will reveal all of your flaws to you and also take you away from things that you know that you would like to be doing. So it's like, oh, do I go out and meet this person and inconvenience myself? Or do I stay at home and watch a show on Netflix that I know that I'll like and stay in my yoga pants, you know? And, <laughs> and so it's just like, 
uh, you know, dating sometimes can represent this just giant chore, which I think is the wrong approach, and it's a quick way to get bitter. Very quick. Right, very quick. But if you look at it instead, it's like, okay, well, relation. we are made for relationship in general, and relationship is a way to become a better person and dating even going out on a bad date will be a way to discover things about myself Mm -hmm. and things about the other person and learn more about interaction and communication there's something good to be had from it even if I fall asleep during the conversation sure yeah (laughs) at the very least that I'm very bad at hiding how bored I am right (laughs) no but I mean I reflect on the relationships that I I've broken up from however you describe leaving a relationship and yeah I've always learned something about myself about the other person and it's it's a wonderful occasion if you have the right disposition to grow in virtue and I this is something which maybe as a single person is very easy for me to remind my couples about is that you know when you're fighting this is a really fantastic opportunity to learn about your vices, learn about, and and to acquire virtue. At the very least, even if you actually are right, which is usually not the case, no Mm -hmm. one is always right, but even if you actually are, you at the very least get to practice patience and charity. (laughs) So congratulations. (laughs) So the, the arguments shouldn't be avoided, and they shouldn't be seen necessarily as a sign that this relationship is on the rocks. And this is... The, the other half of my practice, in addition to being couples, is adolescence. And this is especially true of the adolescent-parent relationship. The fact that you're constantly arguing is a fantastic way for you as a parent, one, to teach your child the reason we do the things we do, and second of all, for the child to learn that, one, my parents aren't crazy, second of all, to go about learning what are the ways that I, I what, what are the things I need to do in order to live in the world and to be part of the world. So arguments should, I think, be embraced, even though they are painful and difficult, they are a fantastic opportunity to grow in holiness, in virtue, and in prudence. So that's the, the first thing to realize, I think, for a lot of people's arguments. Pretty good. Pretty great opportunity. Then the next question is, how do we deal uh, with an argument? How do we then go about yeah. resolving something? And one thing I particularly love from Dr. Gary Chapman is this idea that we should first seek to understand. We should first seek to understand. The goal of an argument is often to get my opinion across and to make the other conform to my opinion Mm. and to my will. And oftentimes, if you're in a loving relationship, if you're in a relationship where you have mutual giving one to the other, whether that's parent or child or friends or, or spousal relationship, you have the opportunity to express what you want and then to expect quite reasonably that the other person is very interested in helping you achieve that and helping you get what you want. Which requires trust. Which requires trust and time and and all these things. So Gary Chapman is very wise to say instead of starting an argument with, we need to talk, (laughs) we we should start an argument with, we need a time to listen. I would like a time to listen to you. Mm. It's how you should start your argument. And That's great, actually. It's, it's a beautiful sentiment. I need a time to listen. 
And your goal in resolving the argument is first to understand not only what your partner is thinking and wants, but also why they're thinking and want this. Once you have the why, then you are in a better position to compare that to what you want and why you want it. Um, and, and I'm not at all advocating that we should suppress our own desire or our own opinion, but I'm saying let's reverse the process of the argument. The first step should be let me understand why this person is holding this crazy, irrational, bizarre thought before I tell them what, should, what they should actually be doing or thinking. Mm. Instead of starting with, well, let me tell you how it should be. So that's my first thought is, and it's something which takes a lot of couples back and takes a whole lot of practice. So the beauty of therapy, of course, is that they get to practice it with me. So they're forced to practice it. They're forced to practice it with me. So we get to trigger them, make them angry and force them to, how can I understand you better today? Or could we have a time to listen? And one thing, a skill set that I, I harp on constantly with my clients is reflexive listening. And the idea with reflexive listening is that once your partner or interlocutor is done presenting their, their what and their why, you get first to repeat it back. Hmm. You get first to respond with, so what I'm hearing is, hmm. what I understand is, and fill in the blank there. And before you get to present your opinion or your response, they get to say, Yes, that's what I meant to communicate. Or, well, not quite. Mm -hmm. You're missing this. That's good. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, I think, the hardest part for a lot of people, and I've seen it in couple after couple, is that in the throes of an argument, there's this temptation, and I wonder if it's a greater temptation among Catholics and Christians who are in this this struggle to forgive and to be loving, but there's this temptation to, you know, if the other person doesn't quite get it, well, that's okay. Mm. That's, that's all right. I'll, I'll just, I'll swallow that bitter pill. I'll carry my cross in this situation rather than going, no, you're actually not hearing that I'm really sad about this, or you're actually not understanding that the reason I want to go here is for X, Y, and Z. What you heard was that I want to do something you don't want to do. You didn't hear the why. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very tempting, I think. And maybe, I mean, I'm a mildly melancholic person and like to avoid work at all costs. For, <laughs> for me, often, it's a desire to avoid the extra work that goes to dealing with this person right now in mm -hmm. this moment. Yeah. Which, if I were to ever get married, is no longer a recourse to me. I can't get out of the conversation. Mm. You know, I'm going to see this person in 20 minutes mm. when I walk through the living room again. Um, right now, as a single person, it's great. I've got 10 minutes, and then I can walk out the door and never see this person if I don't want to. Mm. And again, another example that being single with all its wonder is a pretty... It's pretty difficult to grow in virtue. Yeah. It's pretty difficult to be presented with with occasions to grow in virtue when you're single. You can definitely be happy in your rut, in your little oh, yeah. corner of the universe, if you want. Yes. Yeah. My apartment is a happy place when it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But to that point, too, some of us, you know, a lot of us also come from broken homes, and so we haven't really seen conflict expressed in a healthy way ever in our lives. Absolutely. You know? And so I think... 
for a lot of people, that is a really big reason to just run away from conflict at all costs. You know, just thinking like, ah, all I feel is danger. Right, right. And it's, it's very easy to view, I think, probably for many people, because the majority of us come from broken homes of some sort or another, or what's worse come from mixed families where the other parent really hated our guts, mm. something like that, mm. or the loved was unequal or, yeah, so there's lots of reason and lots of motivation to fear relationship. Or even if parents are still married, like maybe they were passive aggressive their whole marriage or, you know. Yeah, yeah I'm a poor client. Um, <laughs> anyways, so, right, and, and so what I think, you know, to, to that concern um, there probably just needs to be a greater education and because if the family didn't provide the example, the next line of defense is the society. Mm. And so the church, you know, the, the pastors, our youth leaders, our coaches, our friends, our teachers, whoever need to be, you know, expressing how a marriage is a wonderful occasion to grow in virtue, is a wonderful chance to um, become holy, in fact, is the natural and indeed the supernatural plan for human flourishing is within the context of a marriage and and for children in the context of a family and and so on. So, yeah, we need to talk more about that and that needs to be shouted from the rooftops, absolutely. And it's, for those of us who do come from broken homes, it requires a greater act of the will and it requires a greater act of faith to jump into this. But I dare say, not all is lost should you not enter a relationship. As far as our growth in holiness, as far as our growth in virtue, you know, God is the author of that. We're, you know, participants in it, but we're not the principal agents of our holiness. I hope I'm strictly speaking right about that. I have to think about that. But. <laughs> no, I would say that's, yeah, that is theologically uh, correct. I think that's, grace, yeah. grace is a gift freely given by God. Yeah. So, yes. And part of, part of my thought is, you know, as a single man, I'm, I'm often reminded of Benedict Groeschel's words that single people have this obligation to go out of their way to support the family in ways married people don't, in ways parents don't. So for a long while I was a teacher and I was had kids around who are constantly, especially teenagers, are constantly pointing out your flaws and foibles and inadequacies and giving you lots of opportunity to grow. As a therapist, I like to think I'm continuing that. I don't think to the same degree. So I, I think single people have, um, it's, it's most beneficial to their moral life if they find a way to be involved with large groups of people, with families, with building up, you know, whether that's coaching soccer or what have you, or even just being available to the married people in your life and supporting them. Benedict Rochelle gives a great example that at the very least, when you go to parties where there's married people and there's families, buy them an expensive bottle of wine that they can't afford. At the very least, do something to support the family. You know, buy something they can't, bring something that they normally wouldn't be able to have because they're spending money on their kids. At the very least, financially support these people. Um, Support the family in our culture. So I'm, I'm not at all by lauding the opportunities to grow in virtue that are present in a marriage or a relationship, denying that those are present for single people. But I think we single people have to be pretty creative and a little more creative than married people do to create those opportunities, to Mm -hmm. provide those opportunities to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because as you observe, it's very easy to get in our rut and enjoy enjoy our time. Um, (laughs) And just be super selfish all the time. Absolutely. (laughs) 
so the first, you know, I think the ultimate goal in, in arguments in any relationship is to have that sense of seek first to understand, find out what and why my partner holds this opinion or wants to do this, and then respond back with a, a comprehensive understanding of what and why, and then offer our side of the story. Don't ever deny our side. Don't ever ignore it. But first, rest in the other person's position. Be aware of what and why they're doing what they're doing. The, the next point I want to offer as far as how to go about arguing is from Dr. Gottman, and it is perhaps one of his most famous teachings, if you will. And that is that in the course of an argument, some effort at repair, what he calls repair, needs to be made. And so in addition to shouting and being angry and being at loggerheads, whether we're doing reflective listening or not, because obviously the paradigm I just presented is rather serene, you know, I'm understanding, I'm listening, I'm not at all overcome by my anger. But even if we're overcome by our anger, in fact, when we often are overcome by our anger or our sorrow, we should, during the course of that, make attempts to be kind, be generous, and to express our love to our partner. And that gets us right back to the question of the love languages, you know. If during the course of an argument I'm sad or I'm yelling or I'm angry and my partner's love language is touch, I need to hold their hand while I'm doing this or I need to um, take a moment if they're... While you're yelling at them? Well... Some way, uh, I know that also probably sounds irrational too, which shows you <laughs> how long it's been since I've dated anyone. Uh, but what I think would be a pro- and this is where, frankly, I as a therapist offer kind of the principle and let my couple come up with an example. I work really hard not to provide concrete examples to my couples. Let them, because they've been together for a couple of years, a couple of months, they know how to show love as well as hatred towards each other. So what has worked to show your spouse that you love them? What has worked to show your, if you want to do a different relationship, to show your mother or your friend that you respect them or value them? Is it an act of service? Is it a gift of some kind? Is it uh, words of affirmation? So on and so forth. So perhaps the -the off-the-cuff example of shouting and holding hands is (laughs) a little unreasonable. (laughs) Good call. So that's what I get for being creative. Just trying to figure out how that would work because it it also might, I mean, that also sounds like mildly threatening. Mildly threatening, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, oh. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. (laughs) There's this, there's this assumption a lot of people have that if I'm being um, correcting or critical or, or in some way mean or doing something perceived as harsh, and then I follow it up with something nice, a complimentary kind, it's meant to confuse or it's meant to... Gaslight. Gaslight, yeah, mm-hmm. at worst to gaslight. And, and I will tell you this, and, and yes, it's a, it's a meditation from personal experience, so there's no universal principle behind it necessarily, but... I have seen a father who, whose children are wonderfully behaved human beings and kind and generous. And the discipline I've seen is always a verbal correction followed by a hug every time. Mm. And the point was that, and, the, and I asked this father, why do you do this? And his point was that I want my children to know they've done something wrong. 
but that doing something wrong doesn't remove my love from them. Yeah, that's good. And and I think that paradigm is the goal of any argument of any relationship is to look. You've done something wrong, or maybe not that extreme. You've done something that angers me. You've done something that makes me sad. You've done something that hurts me. But I still love you. And this is what a parent does for her adolescent all the time. You know, you've yelled at me, you left your room a mess, you've done something wrong, but I'm still going to cook you dinner. I'm still going to drive you to soccer practice. I'm still going to what have you. So, where did we go there? All right. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess the key with that is pointing out, like, this is how I'm feeling by the fact that you did that, but not saying you're a horrible person and you're worthless and, you know. Or not worthy of my love. Right, right. So it sounds like the key is the messaging there. Yeah, making sure, so making sure the holding of the hand while yelling, if you want to continue that, (laughs) is understood as, you know, is understood that this is a sign that I love you, but I'm also giving you a sign that I'm simultaneously upset. Which gets us back to the the wonderful world of the emotions. We can have all of them all at once, right. you know. Yeah. And and maybe the reason women are thought to be irrational is maybe because they cycle through them quicker than men do. Mm. But that's just a thought, and it's a passing thought, and it's just one driven from observation. There's no clinical science behind that. But anyways, that could be well. How about this this notion of, of picking your battles? So now that we have tools of how to approach battles, mm-hmm. approach arguments, but but there's that saying, like, pick your battle. What does that mean? What, what wow. should we then bring up? How do we healthily approach something that, hey, this has been bothering me, or maybe it's too trivial for me to bring up? Like, how do we judge those Things in our relationships, whether they're with our spouse or with our friends or with our parents. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Pick your battles. My parents live in a, a kind of retirement community in, in Phoenix, surrounded by a golf course and, and whatnot, as, as they do in Phoenix. And every man I have met there who found out I was a marriage and family therapist has responded with, the key is pick your battles. <laughs> Every one of them. And that seemed to be the message that that generation, or at least people who live in Arizona, got. <laughs> uh, so just pick your battles, you'll be a happy man. I don't know why you need a therapist other than to know that. It's interesting. So, so what's happening when we pick our battles? Part of what's happening is that we're ignoring the fact that I'm upset or sad, or mm-hmm. I have a contrary opinion. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I observe. And, and in the context of relationships in general, General, I tend to see this with teens a lot, especially when it comes to their parents, is that I'm going to ignore mom because in a few hours I'm off to school and don't have to deal with her. Mm. I'm going to ignore this issue because in a year I'm going to be off to college and not have to deal with them. And, and so this is, you know, I think learned very early on. And when it gets carried into the romantic relationship, it has the potential to uh, habituate the person to ignoring the fact that they're sad or angry or mm-hmm. upset. And and that could lead to, to bigger clinical issues, depression, not least among them, anxiety as well. So what I think should be observed in this, and, and you know, like all rules of morality, 
you know, it's hard to give a universal statement. There's in some contexts, in some places, this is appropriate. And I would never wholly take off the table the option of I'm just not going to engage right now. But I think my clients have to be aware, and I think we should all be aware that by doing that, I'm also ignoring the fact that this is having an impact on me. And if I'm willing to be ignored or to not be heard or to not be understood in order to avoid this conflict, go ahead. Mm. But just be aware that if that has bigger consequences later on, we're going to have to change our tactic. And I think that while this may occasionally be a useful tactic to not engage or to pick our battle, it seems to me it should not be a universal tactic. Then you get a spouse or a member of a relationship who is just uh, walked all over, mm-hmm. to, to use another common phrase. So that's the first thought, is pick your battles. The other one is, again, kind of back to our earlier discussion, you're purposely giving up an opportunity for both of you mm-hmm. to grow in virtue mm-hmm. and holiness, which, yeah. you know, if that means there's peace in the moment, fine. Um, I think, not being a parent and not being married, I think it's mildly appropriate to pick your battle when you're maybe around your kids or around the in-laws. I'm not going to engage right now in order to keep peace or in order to present a certain face to the world. And this is, especially among people like myself of German ancestry, we don't really like to display emotion to the rest of the world. Mm. And so that's for in the home when I'm in my bedroom alone with my spouse. It's not for anybody else to see. Mm-hmm. So, so, But then you get all the other complexes stereotype, stereotypical of Germans. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> um, so that's the first thought is that, you know, picking our battles is, is purposely avoiding what's going on in our own heart, but also purposely avoiding the opportunity that the reason we're married in the first place, to grow in virtue together. Right, but on the other extreme, you also don't want to be nitpicky at every single little thing, and even for the quote-unquote sake of transparency, because that would just be something that you need to work on as well, of like, well, this irritates me every time you do this. I mean, mm, maybe... how can I manage that? Yeah, but how can I manage that? Yeah. And I do think that there's appropriateness to, to certain things, like, oh, you never put your dishes away. Like, can we work on this? At the risk of sounding like a nag, which is another, you know, stereotype between spouses, like, you always nag me on this. I guess it's just hard. It's it's different for every every couple. It's different for every relationship, even in friendships, even especially, I would say, with your parents. You know, like, you always do this, like, having that extreme look at them. But at that point, like, you probably don't want to tell them every single thing that bothers you about them, you know? So... In that way, the pick your battles thing is appropriate, but I guess I don't know how you would ever really tell what is the appropriate line. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in your scenario there, Laura, what I'm hearing is speaking from the perspective of someone starting the battle rather than choosing mm. not to engage. Mm. It's interesting that I looked at it from, from the other perspective. Uh, that probably says something about me. <laughs> um, but I think you're absolutely right. Part of all of our growth in virtue and holiness is which emotion do I allow myself to respond to? You know, um, in this very moment, I could easily be enraged at the trash truck outside making loud noises. Yes. Or I could choose to be sad and focus wholly on uh, my father's recent death. Or I could, you know, I have all these emotions simultaneously within me. And 
I'm allowed to give them voice or to give them or to focus on the object which elicits that emotion. You know, what, one metaphor that's always been helpful to me from Aristotle, and I forget exactly where he says this, but he compares the human being to a city and he compares our emotions to kind of like uh, um, the, the marketers in the street, you know, or the, the merchants in the, in, the, in the marketplace, always yelling, always trying to get their point across, always trying to be heard, attracting your attention, drawing you to this cool thing, drawing you away from that other thing. And they're always there shouting. And then he likens the intellect um, and the will to kind of like the nobility. So the intellect is kind of like the oligarchy, and the will is like the king. What the king says is done. Mm -hmm. The oligarchy or the council is there discussing things, and the emotions are down there just shouting for your mm. every moment of attention. Mm. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, it, it's a, to me it's a helpful analogy because it helps me see that, you know, Right now with my roommates, I could get angry at the dishes. I could get angry at the unswept floor. I could um, look at the struggles they're having at work. I could acknowledge um, uh, the the vacuuming job they did the other day because I've never vacuumed in the last 10 years. So that's somebody else's job. So I should be thankful for that. So I could focus on all these other things. And yeah, if it's a matter of which emotion am I going to give attention to? Now, yes, sometimes the marketer or the merchants in Market Street throw a revolution and, and overcome everybody. And so I have to focus on my anger. I have to focus on my sorrow, especially in the context of an argument. I kind of get overwhelmed is, is both true of a government as well as of an individual person. I get overthrown. So that happens. But because... I'm saying in the context of an argument, we should pay attention to our feelings doesn't mean we should pay attention to every single one or give attention to all of them or act from them. Right. Or, or even act in response to them. Otherwise right. I would have spent all my money at the marketplace and never made it back home, <laughs> you know, robbed and kidnapped or something. So yeah. And, and part of the value of being in any relationship is that we're given the opportunity to, to see what emotions I'm more likely to, to give voice to or pay attention to. Part of the problem with single life is I'm less likely to see that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm more likely to watch Firefly for the 10th time rather than have an argument or engage in something sorrowful, you know. And it's interesting because I've been thinking, you know, even in the context of like a first date or even in the context of looking at someone's online profile, you know, we've, we've talked about this before about how we have the opportunity now to completely discard someone from the get-go over something super small that like 50 years ago you wouldn't have even found out until mm -hmm. like two or three months in yeah and so how sometimes on a first date I just will choose not even to engage at all when somebody says something that makes me sad or angry or even like someone's really into this blogger that I don't like and that makes me mad usually because they say incendiary things or you know like they're a fan of something and they have a really strong opinion about whatever and instead of raising a different perspective and potentially sharing myself I just choose to think like look at the escape routes and like think sure. how can I get out of sure. here as soon as possible even if it's not really an argument it's just like a disagreement and I'm just like okay well I don't want to talk to you and goodbye you know but I'm thinking now about like how, even if 
I wasn't meant to go on more dates with that person, the extent to which I have hidden myself and kept them from a different perspective just because I don't want to go out on a limb and like have any kind of discussion and how that kind of represents a cowardice. Sure. So in that context, you're avoiding not only showing yourself, but giving expression to the anger or the frustration that you're feeling at their comments. And so when you do that, yeah, that's a picking your battle. And in that instance, I imagine it's worth it to you to avoid engaging. Yeah, I mean, it's been like that in the past, but now I'm thinking about like, well, how many opportunities have I just not taken? And it's my fault, basically, you know, not that I should have, not, not that I'm advocating like, oh yeah, keep going out with people that make you angry or whatever. Right. Yeah. We, you know? we yeah, flirt to convert kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like, at least like I have avoided at least even sharing my opinion about things. Um, and thus shut off to any potential future engagement interaction or a deeper relationship. And I've just said no from the get-go, sure. you know. And, and part of what's interesting about that is, you know, oftentimes I've done the same thing. I've avoided engaging with people, and I have pretty firmly held opinions on everything. Um, <laughs> and I often avoid doing the same thing or engaging just as you do. And part of that is because I don't trust that this person is capable of understanding mm. or yeah. even desirous of understanding. Yeah. And that, I mean... And, and to spill over maybe a little bit into politics, that I think is is one of the great problems of this generation is no one's taking a deep breath and going, why do you think that? Yeah. You know, no one's seeking to understand in that way. And what's what's interesting about a first date, you know, my easy, you know, way of getting through a first date is kind of the way I live my professional life. If you can get them to talk about themselves. You're in a safe place, you know. <laughs> you don't have to reveal anything because yeah. people love talking about themselves. It's an easy topic, you know. It doesn't require a whole lot of thought. So for me, that coming to understand is very easy. I just let. I just somehow start acting, asking about their life, asking about their job. Why do you think this? What was your parents like? Things like that. At the risk of becoming an interviewer, which is also the great mm. crime of a first date. Mm. But um, it just seems to me that. If we started again from trying to understand, we're going to be in a much safer place and a much more confident place to express ourselves, even where there's difference, or maybe especially where there's difference. Mm -hmm. And so, how to cultivate that in people? Well, I guess they listen to your podcast. Yeah. I don't know. So. <laughs> yeah, sure, I like that. <laughs> Well, cool. Um, we've been talking for nearly an hour now, and I'm sure we could have a part two, three, four, five, six, because there's just so much to talk about when it has to do with communication with people we love. But just to just to kind of cap off here, um, are there any verses or you know any any passages of the Bible that you could point our listeners to that, like, if you are coming across any conflict in a conversation argument with someone you love? think about these verses or think about these principles that the Bible presents. Is there something you can help us with? Yeah, the, the big one, of course, is First um, Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. Yep. Um, and, and 
while we can nuance that or, or understand that in many different ways, for me, one of the principal teachings there has always been, you know, love, charity being the greatest of theological virtues, also expresses itself in all these other different ways. And so if we could find, you know, even in the midst of arguments, the opportunity to be kind, to endure, to be patient, mm-hmm. even in the midst of happy times, to be kind and and to remember to be patient and to remember to be loving. Um, I think whether it's a parental relationship or spousal relationship, we're going to grow and, and really capitalize on those opportunities to become charitable and to really begin to uh, become children of God. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. That's awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us again. We look forward to many more talks, hopefully, God willing, in the future. You're just so great, and I just feel like you are well-spoken, and you do your practice well. (laughs) My my God. Thank you, ladies. It's always a delight to see you, and I look forward to next time. Yeah. And just again for our listeners, and we'll put these in the show notes, but where can they find you? Sure. Um, My website is danielmft.com. And you can also find my podcast, The Color of Thought Podcast, on iTunes, as well as on my website. And I am a marriage and family therapist associate with Still Point Family Resources. And you can uh, find out all those other information uh, on my website, danielmft.com. Cool. So check out our show notes to find out more about Daniel and how to get in touch with him should you need to talk to somebody. So again, thank you. And for everyone else, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Laura Samir Sams. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time.